Good morning. Jesus Christ is risen. Amen. Amen. Well, it's a beautiful morning. I want to welcome all of you here this morning. On behalf of the body here at Pacific Hope Church, we welcome you in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We are here to exalt His name. We are here to sing praise, adoration, the proclamation of, of His word for His glory alone. And we welcome you to share with us this morning in doing just that. Proclaiming the truth of Almighty God. Jesus Christ puts death to death. We rejoice in the death of death and the death of Christ. Easter is one of the two days of the year for which uh, church attendance is at its height. Christmas being the other. But the question is, why? Why, throughout this land today, will churches, most of them, be filled to capacity? And the answer is that it's for the same historical reason of which we read in the Gospel accounts. The same word that was brought to the first disciples of Christ echoes aloud 2,000 years later. He is risen. You recall that after the Sabbath, the first day of the week, began the dawn that Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to the tomb. There was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven, came, rolled back the stone from the door, sat atop of it. His countenance was like lightning. His clothing as white as snow. The guards there shook with fear. They trembled. Like dead men, they fell. But the angel answered, said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here. He is risen. Invited them in. Come to the place where the Lord had lay. And then go quickly and tell His disciples that He has risen. And they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. They ran to bring His disciples' word. Great word. This is the greatest historical event to ever take place. Jesus was born to die. We date history from this most crucial event with either B.C. or A.D. We actually date His birth, B.C. or A.D. We date everything from His birth. But we wouldn't be dating anything B.C. or A.D. had He not risen from the dead. Amen? B.C. before Christ. A.D. Anno Domini. Latin for in the year of our Lord. Remember that when you write your next check. Amen? In the year of our Lord. For true believers, Easter is not like unlike any other Sunday. It's the first day of the week for which we gather in remembrance, in worship, in singing, in adoration, and the proclamation of the authoritative authoritative, everlasting Word of God. In regard to His victory over sin and death, the very reason for which the church gathers, the victory of Jesus Christ. Throughout history, there is no one that rivals or can possibly compare to the person, the power, and the proclamations of Jesus of Nazareth, who is the Christ. Unrivaled. Now there have, of course, been many pretenders throughout time who have actually claimed to be Him. Christ said there would be. John Stott has written, and I quote, that mental institutions are full of deluded people who claim to be Julius Caesar, the Prime Minister, the Emperor of Japan, or Jesus Christ. But no one believes them. 
No one is deceived except themselves. They have no disciples except perhaps their fellow patients, end quote. You know, I've personally met people through counseling over the years who've made some very bizarre claims. They have come in, they have uh, wanted or desired biblical counseling, and as you sit down and you talk with them for a while, you realize they're not all there. One man claimed to be one of the two witnesses described in the book of Revelation. And he said that he had a very extraordinary roommate who was none other than Michael the Archangel. This is true. Who just happened to be at that moment back at his apartment taking a nap on the couch. I counseled another woman who seemed normal until she claimed to be the divorcee of Michael Jackson currently dating Tom Cruise and a number of other celebrities. But all of these people fail to convince others simply because they are not what they claim to be. Their character does not support their claims. However, with Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, there was never any discrepancy between His words and His actions. His claims were exclusive. His character was unique. Reaction toward Him when He walked the earth up to this very day is unrivaled. His name alone, Jesus, demands attention, reflection, and reaction. The name above all names demands a reaction. Jesus said, accept me or reject me. There's no middle ground. Now, without doubt, there were multitudes of people who agreed with the facts of Christ's resurrection. Throughout time, there are people who agree with those facts. They agree with that historical event that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. That is the very reason in which they're at church today. But why? Why is it that most churches are filled to capacity today, but not on every given Sunday? That's the question. And the reason is simple. It is because not all who claim to believe truly believe. Not all who profess with their mouth, Jesus Christ is Lord, serve Him as Lord. In other words, not all who claim to be the church, which means called out ones, are truly His church. The church is His body of which He is the head. Many undoubtedly believe the facts regarding the resurrection, yet they do not know the one who was resurrected. Another reason I believe, personally, that they don't come regularly to glorify and worship the Lord is because there's many perverted views regarding the person and the work of Jesus Christ. They're anything but biblical, and that will certainly keep people away from at least a biblical church. It would be very convicting. So what's the upshot of all this? The reason is this. People who profess with their lips and don't truly believe do not agree with God the Father regarding God the Son. They're in disagreement with God the Father in what God the Father has validated and confirmed through His Son. There's disagreement there. There's many misnomers regarding Jesus that people loyally embrace in their disloyalty to Him. Many will say, well, I believe Jesus is a way to God or even He's the way for me. But he's not the way for everybody. Certainly there's more roads to God than just Jesus of Nazareth who claimed to be the Christ. That would be blasphemy. That would be to accuse Jesus of blasphemy. Many people believe that today. Many Jews were very excited about the works of Christ. Many of the Jews for which he came to save followed him around in mass waiting 
and anticipating for Him to miraculously heal people as He did, waiting for Him to miraculously multiply bread and fish for which they could partake of. They saw His works, they saw the miracles, but they resisted His claims. Jesus claimed that God was His Father. And in John 5.19, therefore, because of that, the Jews sought all the more to kill Him. Because He not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was His Father, making Himself equal with God. To claim that God Almighty was your Father was to claim equality with Him. To claim equality with the Father would be blasphemy. Unless, of course, you were God in the flesh. Jesus also stated that the Father confirmed Him as Messiah. In Matthew or Luke rather, 22.67 said, They said to Him, His accusers, If you are the Christ, tell us. But He said to them, If I tell you, you will by no means believe. And if I also ask you, you will by no means answer me or let me go. Hereafter, the Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. That's the place of majesty. The place of honor and the place of judgment. Jesus was handed over to be crucified on the grounds of blasphemy in Luke 22.70. And then they all said, Are you then the Son of God? And so He said, You rightly say that I am. And they said, What further testimony do we need? For we have heard it ourselves from His mouth. And then they led him to Pilate to be crucified. Jesus proclaimed to be the Son of God. He proclaimed to be the King of Kings. In Luke 23, 3, then Pilate asked him, Are you the King of the Jews? And he answered him and said, It is as you say. Indeed, he was a king. The King. The Lord. But the Jews, the Jewish rulers, rejected God's divine plan through the God-man, Jesus the Christ, their long-awaited Messiah. They labeled Him a blasphemer. So to reject the authority, the person, and the narrow way of Jesus is to reject the authority of the person and the claims of the narrow way of God the Father. So in other words, if someone claims to have God and does not agree with everything that Jesus said of Himself, they don't have God. That's to cry out blasphemy against Jesus. To reject God the Father's confirmation of Jesus Christ, His Son, as Scripture clearly declares, is to decide on the side of blasphemy, which is to say in one's heart, crucify Him. But Jesus came to be crucified only once. One time. And He undeniably rose up from the grave. Proof of the resurrection does not need to be demonstrated. The greater question is, what does the resurrection demonstrate? What does the resurrection demonstrate? Many people who claim to be Christians claim to be God's people. They say we're God's people. Those who claim to be Christian and profess to be God's people actually accuse Jesus with blasphemy. As 80 some percent of Americans claim to be born again Christians. If you sit down and inquire of them what they believe about, the pro about Christ that they profess with their mouth, they believe anything but what the Scriptures declare of the one and only begotten Son of God. Therefore, they may as well say blasphemy. They, they assert that Jesus was merely a, an example. A great example, without doubt. The greatest example, perhaps. Or that He was merely a prophet. Even the greatest prophet. But not that he was God in human flesh. Or they may say, well, yes, he was God in human flesh, but he's not the only way to the Father. He's one way to heaven, but not the only way. The Jews claim to be God's people. 
And they accused Jesus of blasphemy, and then they murdered him. Now, obviously, in order for Jesus to resurrect from the grave, he had to be put to death. And the question I want to ask this morning is, what does his death and resurrection prove? I want to get even a bit more personal on this beautiful, sunny Easter morning and ask something very personal. Does your life, your life, personal, does your life bow in humble submission to the resurrected Christ or does your life scream, crucify Him? Crucify Him. Because there are many who claim to be Christians who reject His all-authoritative commands. And we must make the most of this opportunity this morning as we exalt the Almighty Word of God. So I asked this morning, are you here today in full agreement with God the Father and His confirmation of Jesus, His only begotten Son? Do you agree with God the Father about Jesus the Son? Or do you reject the confirmation, the validation of Jesus that comes from the Father as you stand in opposition, rebellion, or even indifference as to the person and the work of God the Son? Now before you answer that, and I certainly don't want you to answer out loud, but I want you to ponder this question. But I want you to see from Scripture, through the Apostle Peter's sermon at Pentecost, that this is the very issue that he addressed on that mighty, mighty day. As I invite you to open to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 22 to 39 in our study this morning. We'll begin the reading of God's Word in verse 22. It says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you, by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through Him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. Whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that He should be held by it. Did you get that? It was not possible for Jesus to be held by death. Verse 25, For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried in his tomb with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet, knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we all are witnesses. Therefore, in being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord sit, said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And then Peter said to them, Repent! And let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises to you and to your children and to all who are far off as many as the Lord our God will call. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your glorious, authoritative, everlasting word. We thank you for putting to death, death. 
by taking on death, the death that we deserve, the punishment that is owed to us. We thank you for your gift and we thank you for defeating death. We know that the grave couldn't hold you because you are God, Almighty God. Though the hands of wicked man could put you to death as predetermined by your Father, we thank you that you rose from the dead, claiming victory over sin and death. We pray this morning that your church would be edified and we pray for any who do not know you that you would cut them to the heart as happened here on Pentecost, that they'd be saved. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Peter's sermon here reveals the stark contrast between the delight of God the Father toward His one and only Son and the disregard of the Jews towards Jesus, the Messiah that they were waiting for, the one that they had anticipated, the hope of Israel. As we unfold these, there's certain validations we're going to look at. These are six validations outlined in your bulletin, validations of the Son from the Father. My encouragement is that you examine yourself as we look at these to see if you're standing with God in Christ or if you're standing opposed to Him and in favor of some imaginary God, a God created in your own image. Because you must know that you were created in the image of God. And God's creation, created in His image, is created to bring Him glory, to manifest His glory through worship and adoration and submission to the One who created you. And unless you're lined up with the God of Scripture, you have a God that is a God of your own imagination. And my hope is that you will line up under the authority of Scripture and the one and only, holy, mighty, righteous God through His Son, Jesus Christ. Now, the fundamental nature of the crime against Jesus was the rejection of God. The rejection of God the Father in and through the life of His Son. Jesus said, if you've seen Me, you've seen the Father. For I and My Father are one. So these are warnings this morning with eternal consequences for those who do not confirm Jesus as the Father has. The Father confirms His Son in very specific ways. And we want to make sure that we confirm Jesus as the Father does. So there are six validations of the Son from the Father. We look at number one. God the Father validates Jesus by working signs, miracles, and wonders through Him. Look at verse 22. Peter says, Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through Him in your midst as you yourselves also know. He begins, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth is the humble name that identified God incarnate here on earth. Remember, Jesus is God, always has been God. He's not a man who we elevated to be God. He's God who lowered himself, came to earth, and took on the form of humanity. He's God who became a man. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and then the Word dwelt among us, pitched a tent, tabernacled. He became like us in human flesh. Jesus of Nazareth, he says, a man, attested by God, a man indeed, but not any mere man. He was the God-man. Notice, he was attested by God the Father. Attested means that he was confirmed. He, he was endorsed or exhibited to demonstrate the holy, righteous God of heaven. Right here on earth. Attested by God. In John chapter 5, verse 36, Jesus said, For the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do bear witness of me, that the Father has sent me. So Jesus did sign miracles and wonders. He healed the lame. He healed the blind. He raised the dead. He healed the leprous. He multiplied food. He turned water to wine. He did sign miracles, and those signs pointed to something greater than themselves. Signs on the freeway is not the point of arrival. Signs on the freeway point you to something greater than the sign. Amen? 
get on the 5 and you go north to Los Angeles, there will be a sign that says Los Angeles. You do not stop at the sign and embrace the sign. Lift your arms in victory saying, we have arrived. Amen? That points you to Los Angeles. These sign miracles pointed to the deity of Jesus Christ. That He was God. The first miracle was water to wine at the wedding of Cana in John chapter 2. The last miracle, the last sign that he would fulfill, he declared at the beginning of his ministry in John 2 when he went into the temple and he turned tables upside down, he made a cord of whips and he chased the men out as well as the animals as, as they were trying to market God. He turned the place upside down. And there we see the righteous indignation of Jesus. So the religious leaders of the day said, what sign do you show us to prove or to validate that which you just did. Jesus answered them. In John chapter 2, 19, He said, destroy this temple, and in three days, I'll raise it up. And as we know, Scripture declares that He was referring to His body. John chapter 2, verse 19, Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. And then the Jews said, It's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it up in three days? But He was speaking of the temple of His body. Therefore, when He had risen from the dead, His disciples remembered that He said this to them and they believed the what? The Scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Now at this point, back in John 2, this is the beginning of the earthly ministry of Jesus of Nazareth. He had began to do many signs, miracles, and wonders, and guess what? The people flocked to Him. They were drawn to the fact that He was able to do these miraculous things. And who wouldn't want to follow someone that healed every infirmity that you had and provided food on a daily basis, right? That's why there was multitudes following Jesus. But notice Jesus. John 2.23, when He was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in His name when they saw the signs which He performed. But Jesus did not commit Himself to them because He knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man for He knew what was in man. In other words, He knew fickle, superficial belief in the cheap profession of faith that sinful mankind has. So He did not give Himself to them because He knew their superficiality. They were not true seekers of God. So Jesus did not commit Himself to them. You know, Jesus never catered to shallow superficial belief. He never catered to it then, and He will not cater to it today. He knows who are His. But these signs, these signs, these miracles, these wonders, were recorded in John's Gospel so as to fulfill His purpose. In the Gospel of John, which is written to declare the deity of Jesus, that Jesus was God in the flesh... John wraps up the whole thing in John chapter 20, verse 30, saying this, And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of His disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. Acts 2.22, notice, back in Acts, these things God did through Him in your midst as you yourselves also know. They knew this. This group, this mob that Peter was preaching to, they never denied the fact that Jesus performed signs, miracles, and wonders. Ever. No one ever did all throughout Scripture. No one denied the fact that Jesus did sign, miracles, and wonders. What they did in their hypocrisy, though, is they accused him of doing those miraculous things in the power of Beelzebub and the power of Satan. That's blasphemy. Many people followed Jesus in these signs, miracles, and wonders for that very reason. And in John chapter 6, verse 66, you remember this as we studied it a couple months ago, Jesus said to them, He's teaching them. He's saying, look, unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you have no part of me. 
He's saying, look, unless you are totally immersed in me, you worship me, you worship me alone, because I am the very bread of life, you have no part of me. So the more difficult Jesus' teachings got, the more more piercing they were to the conscience, the more that they severed the heart of man, John 6.66 says, from that time, many of his disciples, followers, went back and walked with him no more. They loved his signs, they loved his miracles, they loved what he did for them, but they were not willing to pick up their cross and follow Christ. So my question, point number one, do you submit to God's validation of Jesus by the signs that he did, or is your belief, as those in John 2, merely outward? Do you follow him? Are you here today because you're dedicated to the work and the ministry, the person, the power, and the life of Jesus Christ? Or is there another reason? That leads us to point number two. God the Father validates Jesus by arranging his death through the hands of sinners. Verse 23, Peter cries out, he says, Him, Jesus, being delivered by the determined purpose in the foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified, and you put him to death. So, next Peter presents the death of Christ as having been caused by his audience, the very ones that he's preaching to, but also that it was determined by the foreknowledge of God. God the Father predetermined the death of His Son and that it would be carried out on earth through the hands of sinful man. That's what he's proclaiming here. So here we see a paradoxical truth that we see throughout Scripture. We see the divine providence of God and human responsibility coming together. God preordained in eternity past that His Son would be put to death and that it would be accomplished through the hands of sinful man. That's a paradoxical truth. Caused by the very people He's speaking to. And we know that God ordains the means as well as the ends, doesn't He? If it hadn't pleased the Father to crush the Son, as Leon read from this morning in Isaiah 53, that's an Old Testament prophecy of the Messiah who would be crushed. And it says it pleased the Father to crush Him. Why? So that those who will truly believe can be saved. Because the consequences of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. He's the only provision. There had to be a righteous sacrifice. First Peter 1.21 says, He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world. In Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, it says, Jesus, the very Lamb of God, was slain from the foundation of the earth. In other words, brothers and sisters, the death of Jesus Christ was no surprise to God. It was no, okay, plan B. What are we going to do now? My son... He was arrested. What are we going to do? Plan B. No plan B. There was one plan from the beginning, preordained before the foundation of the earth, before God said in the beginning, right? In the beginning, let there be light. Before that, Christ was crucified. What's your response to that? In eternity past, prior to Adam and Eve sinning in the garden, God planned the redemption of sinners, those who will be called by His name. He provided a sacrifice in His plan. It was His Son. Notice, now notice in this verse, verse 23, it says, Him being delivered by the determined purpose of foreknowledge of God. Notice next, have been taken by. Delivered by Almighty God, delivered by God, and taken by the lawless, sinful hands of man. Notice how fearless Peter's preaching is. Oh, do we need more preaching like this at pulpits today. Come on, somebody. There are men in pulpits who are cowards. Cowards. God's Word is to be proclaimed, exalted with authority. Peter's preaching with authority. His life is in jeopardy here. He's pointing out to these Jews saying, you're the ones that put him to death. Your lawless, sinful hands put the Christ to death. But nonetheless, it was preordained by the Father, and you're guilty. They're like, ay, ay, ay. 
Now, Jesus had been crucified at this point only weeks prior to this. So this is very fresh. This is fresh. This is on the forefront of their minds. They were crying out weeks prior to this, Crucify Him! Crucify Him! He's a blasphemer. He's, he's proclaiming to be equal with God. Put Him to death. Pilate brings out Jesus. Pilate knows Jesus isn't guilty. And he offers them, as was tradition, to free someone, one of their own people, from jail. So they bring out Barabbas, this criminal. He says, who shall I deliver to you, Barabbas or Jesus? These sinful men and women cried out what? Barabbas. Crucify Jesus. Many people gathering in worship today who are rolling their eyes at the true gospel message today crying out, crucify Him. Because they don't see their own sin. They don't see their need for a Redeemer. They don't see their need to submit to the all-authoritative One. The One He created them in His own image to bring glory to Him. It's human pride. In Acts 5.30... It says, God of our fathers raised up Jesus whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. That wooden cross. That wooden cross. The Jews had Him arrested. The Romans had Him nailed to the cross. But it was our sin that was the grounds for His crucifixion. Your sin and my sin were the grounds for God the Father to crush His Son. He came to earth by the foreordained sovereign will of Almighty God for one purpose, and it was to be crushed, beaten, brutalized, whipped, torn open, and then nailed to a cross. And the earthly earthly result was that it would be through the hands of sinful man who would cry out, blasphemy and crucify him. But the eternal preordained result was this. This is very important. The reason that God, the Father, sent His Son to be crucified was to appease His holy wrath because God is holy. God is perfectly just. And His righteous indignation must be satisfied. And the only way to satisfy the wrath of the Father is to put to death a holy, perfect sacrifice. And there's only one. It's the one who was the same, who was one in essence and nature with the Father, and that is the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Isaiah 53.10 Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for sin. Anyone who's not rejoicing today that is sitting under sound biblical teaching needs to examine themselves to see if they're in the faith because this is what we rejoice over. Your sin was laid upon the Son of God. Jesus paid for that sin as though He committed every sin of everyone who will be paid for as though He committed them Himself. And then in return you get His righteousness? Because He rose from the dead? That's salvation. See, God's righteous wrath had to be satisfied by necessity of who He is and what He is. And you know what that is? Holy. God is perfectly set apart from His creation. God is perfectly holy. Amen, brother. 1 John 4.10 says this, And this is love, not that we love God. Anyone who says, well, I just love God and I choose God and yeah, He's okay with me. No. And this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation of our sins. Propitiation means satisfaction. He came to be the satisfaction of the Father. God's wrath had to be satisfied. And there was only one way to satisfy it, as I said. So if Jesus is not the propitiation and the satisfaction for your sins, you will pay for your own. Anyone who is not under the blood of Christ will have to pay for their own sin. That's the bad news. That's why the gospel is such a good news. Gospel means good news. That's why it's so good. Because there's so much bad news. Get it? There's so much bad news. We are wretched, rotten sinners and we deserve the wrath of a holy, mighty God, but God has sent His Son to pay the price. 
That's the good news. That's gospel. Gospel means good news. Amen? Isn't it good? He's risen from the dead. He's put death to death. We rejoice today. Let us not forget the price that was paid. Amen? We're not going to have some sunny little message, you know, with, that, that is just surfaced. There's a reason. What does the resurrection prove? May we not forget. So, question number two. Do you submit to God's validation of Jesus in humility because of the sacrificial death of Christ? By way of obedience and submission? Or are you opposed to it? To be opposed is to cry out, Blasphemy! Blasphemy! Number three. God the Father validates Jesus by raising Him from the dead for the sins of His people. Verse 24, this Jesus whom God raised up having loosed the pains of death because, here it is, this is just beautiful. This is the key to the whole thing. It was not possible that he should be held by it. By what? By death. You can't kill God. God the Father delivered him in his preordained plan received by the sinful hands of man. They put to death Christ in his humanity but he rose because of his deity. He's God. He's God. So Peter states the fact of Christ's resurrection. God worked out this plan, this predestinated plan in, in stages. Number one was his death. He had to be put to death. Afterward, his resurrection. It's very simple. This is the capstone of Christianity, brothers and sisters. The resurrection. Without the resurrection, we would not be here this morning. Amen? We wouldn't be here on any given Sunday. Because everything that Jesus taught and proclaimed about himself, void. Scratch it out. He rose from the dead. So we better take heed to what he said. Amen? And we can rejoice in that. Praise God I don't have to pay for my own sin. I rejoice over that. Chief of sinners, me. Praise God I'm covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. There's no good in me. There's some good in me. You know what it is? Is Jesus in me? That's it. I have no good in and of myself. Zero. I'm a wretched, rotten sinner and I'm saved by grace. Unmerited favor. You're not going to get to heaven any other way than the unmerited favor of Jesus Christ. Zero. You cannot outweigh your good with your bad. If you're trying to do it, you're on the broad road to hell. You must bow at the foot of the cross. But by raising up Jesus, it loosed the pains of death. And now Peter goes on here and he quotes Psalm 16. He quotes this glorious psalm. And we'll jump down for the sake of time. We won't read through the whole thing. But look at verse 27. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Had Jesus remained in the grave, there'd be no New Testament. Had Jesus remained in the grave, there'd be no church. Had Jesus remained in the grave, the story of his life would have remained buried with him. Period. It's a documented fact. Jesus, the grave couldn't hold him. Death couldn't handle Jesus. The grave couldn't hold him because he was who he claimed to be, the Son. One and only Son of God. So the New Testament, his living and ever-growing true church is the effect of his resurrection, never to die. Never to die. In Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said this, I will build my church and the gates of Hades, which is death, will not prevail against it. Will not. Hades is the Old Testament equivalent of Sheol we read about in the New Testament, which simply means grave. It means the place of the dead. Death will not cease the growth of His church. You know when the true church is martyred? Throughout this, throughout this world, people are put to death because they profess the name of Jesus Christ. And I'll tell you what, if it ever happens in America, you'll find out who the true church is real quick. Superficial belief always scatters when the sword is brought out. When they pull it back and they stick it to your throat and they say, renounce the name of Jesus Christ or die. Then you find out who the true church is. In Romans 1 verse 4, 
Paul speaks of Jesus who declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by this, the resurrection from the dead. We're here because of the resurrection. So do you submit to the risen Christ as a person, yourself, who's been spiritually resurrected? In other words, have you been born again? Jesus said, unless a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom. He must be born again to be saved. What does it mean to be born again? Jesus said, look, you were born with a nature that is a sin nature. And because of that sin nature, you're separated from a holy God. That nature must be transformed. The only way for that nature to be transformed from the inside out by the resident power of the Holy Spirit is you submit your life to Jesus Christ and say, God, I'm a sinner. Have mercy on me. I surrender. Surrendering. Submitting to the authority of Christ is a sign that God is at work in you, causing you to be born again. It's a new nature. You think differently. You take on the mind of Christ. And if not, if one hasn't been born again, they are still dead in their trespasses and sins, and there's only one remedy. That's number four. God the Father validates Jesus by exalting Him as the sole provider of spiritual and saving faith. There is no other way to be saved than, through Je than Jesus Christ alone. That's it. There's no other road that leads to heaven, brothers and sisters, friends and family. There is one, and it's Jesus Christ. Verse 32 and 33. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses, therefore being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He poured out this which you now see and hear. What is this now you see in here? What's he talking about? Well, we have to go back to the beginning of chapter 2. It was the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit was poured out in power. And these Galileans began to speak in different languages. Speaking is what we know as being tongues. This was not Babel. This wasn't babbling. Tongues was specific languages that a person did not speak. They weren't uttering, you know, time I bow tie, time I bow tie, time I bow tie over and over again. Or she rode in on a blue Honda on a Monday over and over again. No. Specific languages is what was going on here. They were all filled with the Spirit, chapter 2, verse 4, filled with, the Holy, filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So this is what was going on. And then he goes on and he quotes Joel in verses 17 to 21. And then he goes on to preach, as we're in the middle of now. And he says, it's these things, these signs, these wonders, the sign that you're witnessing right now, these men speaking in other languages, they're not drunk, as you suppose. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you recall, church, a few weeks ago we were in John 7. And in John 7, verse 37, Jesus said this, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him, now look at this, would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Jesus died, he ascended, glorified, the day of Pentecost came, and the Holy Spirit poured out himself upon his people, as they were in an upper room praying. So this very passage in Acts is the fulfillment of the promise that Jesus gave back in John 7. Now notice in John, it says, if anyone thirsts. Many people thirst. Many people in church today because they're thirsting. They have something inside of them that says, man, my life is not fulfilled. There's got to be more. There's got to be more. Something's not right. I have it all, but there's something missing. They thirst. Jesus said, if anyone thirsts, let him come. Many people thirst, therefore many people come near to Christ. They come to church. They, they, they come by way of reciting a prayer. They come by way of being baptized. They, they come by way of be, walking an aisle. Quote, unquote, accepting Jesus. They come near in knowledge. They perhaps go every week. But many come because many thirst, but, here's the key, they never drink. You must know that you thirst, you must come and then you must drink, you must partake of Christ in order to be saved. Therefore, they're not the Lord's, the very one that they claim, if they do not drink and partake of Him. 
Jesus said in John 15 regarding the Holy Spirit, He says, But when He, the Helper, comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will testify of who? Of me. The Holy Spirit is testifying today through His Word about His Son. The Holy Spirit is speaking today through the proclamation of His Word regarding His Son. The only way the truth and the life. So to be void of the Holy Spirit is to be void of Christ. And to be without Christ is to be without the Father. Many people say that they know God. They have a higher power. I know God. Don't tell me I don't know God. If you don't know Christ, you don't know the Father. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you don't know Christ and therefore you don't have the Father. That's the words of the living God. To testify of a Jesus who's not of the Scripture is to not have the Spirit of truth. This is very important because there's many, many false conceptions today regarding Jesus. Well, He's one of many ways. Jesus is the way for me, but He's not the way for other people. That's a lie from the pit of hell. So my question, does your life testify? In other words, does it give evidence that Christ lives in you? Does Christ live in you? Do you have the resident power of the Holy Spirit within you? Jesus said, you must be born again. If you don't know Him, cry out to Him today. That leads us to number five. God the Father validates Jesus by exalting Him as the sole judge of all who reject Him. Look at verse 34 and 36. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says of himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Christ. He's Lord. He's the judge of all judges. So this validation of Jesus describes the ultimate terror of those who reject Him. Those who accuse Him of blasphemy, this is, this is terrifying. To reject Jesus is to, reje to reject God who declared Him to be Messiah. The Savior. The only way. So those who reject the one who upheld the law, you remember, here it is, Jesus came to uphold the perfect standard. He came to uphold the perfect law of God. You can't uphold His law. To get to heaven, you have to be perfectly sinless. You have to live a sinless life. You have to uphold God's law. That's impossible. Jesus did the work. The prideful man or woman says, I'll do it my own. I don't need Christ. Well, He's the only one that could uphold the law. He's the only way. He's it. He's the sacrifice. And because He did that, He upheld the law, He was crucified, He died, He rose from, again, from the dead, He's been exalted as Lord of the universe. And everyone will be judged by what they did with Jesus of Nazareth, who is the Christ. Those who reject the one who upheld the law will be judged according to the law. That's the bad news. You've been hearing the good news. Jesus did it all. 1 Peter 4, 5, it says, They will give an account to Him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. They will give an account. In other words, they are amassing debt for which they will have to pay eternally. So, are you submitted to the fact that Jesus is the only judge of all mankind? Or are you the, under the condemnation of your own sin? May Christ lift that condemnation today and grant you understanding that He paid the price and that you'll submit to Him today and to come under His saving Lordship. That's the Gospel. Acts 4.12 says this, and there is, this, there is salvation in no one else. If you're looking anywhere else but Jesus Christ for salvation, there is no, no one else. There's no other way. There's no other hope. For there is no other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. Acts 4.12. That's the name above all names. That's the name of Jesus Christ. That's the reason you're here today. You came here today because Jesus rose from the dead. You might have been forced here. Compelled. Guilted into it. Whatever the case, you were here because Jesus rose from the dead. And that leads us to our last point, number six. God the Father validates Jesus as the one to whom man must repent and be identified with. He must be in Him. Verse 37 to 39. 
Now, when they heard this, now remember, Peter is preaching authoritatively, saying, Look, you y'all, y'all, y'all crucified Christ by the wicked hands of you Jews, you sinners who rejected your promised Messiah. You're guilty. So the heralded truth that Peter has announced at Pentecost is known as the kerygma, the apostolic proclamation of salvation through Jesus Christ alone. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Peter and the rest of the apostles. Men and brethren, what shall we do, they said. Look at Peter's answer. He didn't say, look, just recite this prayer and you're in. He didn't say that. He didn't say, walk down this aisle, do this or do that. He said, no, repent. Repent, he said. And let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is to you and to your children, and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call today. Is He calling you today if you don't know Him? By the way, baptism doesn't save anybody. Baptism was the first step of obedience for someone who submits their life to Jesus Christ in repentance. Because then what you're doing in baptism is you're making a public proclamation of identifying in the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ being cleansed and washed by what He did. So baptism doesn't save. It is an outward expression of an inward reality that takes place by His grace alone. So he, Peter gives a final summons here. And the summons is this. It's one of repentance and belief in order to obtain forgiveness. To obtain forgiveness. To become part of the true church of Jesus Christ. Sinner saved by what? Grace, which is unmerited. Favor. You can't earn this, man. You don't have enough to pay for this. He paid it all. So it's unto Christ we owe, amen? So his summons is to respond. They were cut to the heart with conviction. All he's doing is preaching the word. I'm preaching the word today. I hope that unbelievers are convicted to the core because I love people and I want to see them saved. There's only one way. This is it. Their hearts were pierced by God's word. In the revelation of God's word, you know what it does? Just like it did to these people, it exposes guilt, shame. That's beautiful. If, if, if someone sits under the true preaching of the Word today and they're not guilty and full of shame, they are hardened. And in a very, very, very gruesome place to be hardened to unbelief. But if there's shame, if there's guilt, there's hope. Because they cry out, What shall we do to be saved? Repent. Believe. So perhaps you've agreed thus far with the five points. Yes, I believe all these things. I believe all the validations of God the Father regarding God the Son. But my question is, do you agree with and does your life validate point number six? Have you repented and do you believe? Does your life reflect someone who says Jesus is Lord? Or does your life reflect someone who says blasphemy? Crucify Him. I hear the Word of God, crucify the Word, I don't want to hear the Word. Or do you receive the Word with joy? That's a sign as to whose you are. So to agree merely intellectually with the facts is not submission. It's not surrender. The only validation of true belief is repentance surrender, a life of obedience. And He even gives you the power to obey, brothers and sisters. He gives you the power to obey because He raised from the dead and He sent the Spirit, the Helper, to enable you to do God's will. Repentance, what does it signify? Repentance signifies that a man's mind is completely changed. It means, look, I was going this way, this was my mindset, this was my philosophy, this was my thinking of God, now I've been radically confronted with truth, and because of that truth I was pierced to the heart, and I turn now completely 180 degrees in submission to the one who came, to the one who died, to the one who rose from the dead, to the one who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. You say, I agree with that, and I surrender to that authority. I surrender my life to you, Jesus. 
That's repentance. If, if you notice here in this sermon, the main issue here, and at every point in this sermon, you know what it is? It's God. It's God, not man. We don't care what man thinks. We care what God thinks. And God says, my son is the only way. Because he is my sacrificial lamb who laid down his life for the sins of all who will believe. And because he's one with me, he raised from the dead. He's the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Him. Jesus said in Luke 11.23, He who is not with me is against me. He who does not gather with me scatters abroad. To remain indifferent about Jesus Christ is to be fully opposed to Jesus Christ. So there's a serious warning this morning, this Easter, for anyone who may agree with this truth yet believe that there's another way that God will accommodate other people 2 John 9 says this, Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. Why? Because they're one. They're one. And He'll give you the assurance of that by the residency of the Holy Spirit. But you must bow in humble submission to His authority. Jesus said in John 7, verse 16 and 17, My teaching is not my own. My teaching is from Him who sent me, the Father. He didn't have an earthly message. It was a heavenly message that He came with. So Jesus is the one that must be fully embraced, fully accepted, revered, worshipped, and obeyed. And such a life verifies saving faith. Or He is one who must be fully opposed, rejected, scorned, and detested. There is no mediocre ground of neutrality to stand on with regard to Jesus of Nazareth who is the Christ. Jesus said this as I close. Matthew 28, verse 18. After He resurrected, He met His own disciples. And He said this, All authority has been given to Me in heaven and on earth. Okay, when you understand that, you'll understand the meaning of the Great Commission to go make disciples. And that's what we're about making disciples. We make disciples, we feed God's children so that you can go out and proclaim the true gospel to those who don't know Jesus. Amen? All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. He can only be with you to the end if He's in you. For Him to be in you, you must see Him as He is declared through Scripture. You must repent and you must bow and surrender to His authority. Or you will die without Him. So our meeting together here is not in order to prove the resurrection. That's a fact. That's a fact. That's why you're here. The question for us today is what does the resurrection prove? God the Father has validated that all authority has been given to the Son alone. The resurrection proves the truthfulness of God's Word. The resurrection proves the deity of Christ, that He's God in the flesh. It proves the triumph of God's salvation granted to the sinner. And the birth of His church. The continuation of His church. That the gates of hell, Hades, death will not prevail against His church. Even under great persecution, you know what happens to the church? It flourishes. You get quality disciples, not false disciples. His resurrection also proves the inescapability of the righteous judgment of God. It also assures eternal assurance for those that are His. And a guarantee to enter the very presence of Almighty God in His glory upon death of which we will all face. And there's victory over death because He rose from the dead. It proves all those great things and it also proves the negative. Separation from Him for all eternity. Paying for one's own sin. 
Jesus talked more about hell than all the prophets put together. And he said, hell is a place where there's wailing and weeping and gnashing of teeth. To be cast into outer darkness for all eternity. You can escape the grip of death today. And you can no longer fear death if you will humbly submit your life to Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. He's it. We give you that opportunity today. We're not going to ask you to do anything crazy because I'll tell you what, if the Holy Spirit's working in your life, the hope is that you'll surrender to the one who rose from the dead. That's the hope. Jesus said, for those of you who call yourselves Christians and you're not at all bearing fruit of someone who's a Christian, Jesus said in Luke 6.46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things which I say? Why? So question, are we with Him or are we against Him? Do we join the Father in His exaltation of Jesus the Son or does your mind, your philosophy, your theology, and your life cry out, blasphemy, crucify Him? It's one or the other. It's one or the other. He alone is the resurrection and the life. Jesus said, John eleven twenty five, I am the resurrection and the, and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall, what? Live. He shall live. Because he's alive. If you don't know him today, my hope is that this divinely appointed time preordained before the foundation of the earth was a time in which he meets you and he met you today if you don't know him. And I pray that you'll walk out here submitted and, submitted and surrendered to his lordship. And for you, the church, those who are in Christ, rejoice and never forget the price that was paid at Calvary. Amen? Never forget it. Let us stand and let us pray. Our glorious, holy, and mighty God, we thank you for your preordained gospel the good news of sending your Son, that before the foundation of the earth, your Son, our Savior, was crucified. Lord, though that is all beyond our comprehension, we do not understand, but certainly you have granted us the faith to believe. And I ask today, on behalf of those who do not know you today, who are here dead in their trespasses and sins, I pray that the sword of your Spirit, the convicting truth of your Word, would pierce their hearts, and that they would know that there is no good that they can do to find your favor. To earn your favor, they must humbly bow in submission for what you've already provided. The sacrificial lamb, the perfect sacrifice, the only one that could satisfy your wrath. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come upon them and draw them to yourself and soften their heart and take out the heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh that they would believe and become your children saved by grace. And Lord, for your church, yours saved by grace, may we be edified and encouraged to walk in humble submission for what you have provided for us, the gracious gift of your Son, Jesus Christ, the one who raised from the dead, for which we rejoice today and every day, for every day is Easter to us, and we thank you for that. Bless your people, Lord. Bless these folks here today for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' mighty, almighty, holy, holy name. Together we all say, Amen.